Elder L. Tom Perry made reference uh, this afternoon to additional millions and millions of people who now may hear the glorious message of the restored gospel. The Lord has in the recent past opened the doors of nations long denied the blessings of gospel covenants. Elder Perry reissued the Lord's clarion call for every worthy young man to serve a mission with a deep desire to in no way detract from his clear and urgent message. I would like to ask the question, what kind of missionaries must they be? The Church was less than 18 months old when the Lord encouraged the early saints by saying, Wherefore, be not weary in well-doing, for ye are laying the foundation of a great work, and out of small things proceedeth that which is great. Behold, the Lord requireth the heart and a willing mind. Missionaries who have willing minds are needed in the field. Let me share with you the feelings of one who had a willing mind. Elder Heber C. Kimball recorded, The Prophet Joseph came to me and said, Brother Heber, the Spirit of the Lord has whispered to me, Let my servant Heber go to England and proclaim my gospel and open the door of salvation to that nation. The thought was overpowering. O Lord, I am a man of stammering tongue and altogether unfit for such a work. How can I go to preach in that land which is so famed throughout Christendom for learning, knowledge, and piety, the nursery of religion, and to a people whose intelligence is proverbial? Note this. However, all these considerations did not deter me from the path of duty. The moment I understood the will of my Heavenly Father, I felt a determination to go at all hazards believing that he would support me by his almighty power and endow me with every qualification that I needed." Quote. Many months passed. This man of strong determination to duty completed his mission and was about to return home. Quote, On the morning when I left Chatburn, many were in tears, thinking they should see my face no more. When I left them, my feelings were such as I cannot describe. As I walked down the street, I was followed by numbers. The doors were crowded by the inmates of the houses to bid me farewell, who could only give vent to their grief in sobs. While contemplating this scene, I was constrained to take off my hat, for I felt as if the place was holy ground. The Spirit of the Lord rested down upon me, and I was constrained to bless that whole region of country. My heart was like unto theirs, and I thought my head was a fountain of tears, for I wept for several miles after I bid them adieu." The Lord needs missionaries with a willing heart and mind. Truly effective missionaries have many talents, varied and beautiful. But one quality they all seem to have is the ability to stick with their commitments. That is the power to do what they agree to do. They tell themselves to get up in the morning on time and do it. They don't need 
companions or district leaders or anyone else to remind them. They commit to the mission president that they will follow the gospel study program every morning and not run out of steam in a few days. From whence came this power to make a decision and stay with it? I would suggest to you it came in most cases long before they entered the mission field. Eighteen months ago, President Thomas S. Monson spoke at the General Priesthood meeting concerning a very important message. It has been published for all of us in a pamphlet called For the Strength of Youth. Permit me to read a short paragraph. Some people knowingly break God's commandments. They plan to repent before they go on a mission or receive the sacred covenants and ordinances of the temple. Repentance for such behavior is difficult and painful and may take a long time. It is better to not commit the sin. Certain sins are of such gravity that they can put your membership in the Church and your eternal life at risk. Sexual sins are among those of such seriousness." It is my judgment that some of our youth do not believe that repentance for serious transgression is difficult and painful and may take a long time. Where has this grave misunderstanding come from? To you, young people, if any of us who are older have given you the impression that it isn't too serious to disobey the commandments of God, forgive us. Listen carefully to the words of the Lord through a prophet, even King Benjamin. And now I say unto you, my brethren, that after ye have known and have been taught all these things, if ye should transgress and go contrary to that which has been spoken, that ye do withdraw yourselves from the Spirit of the Lord, that it may have no place in you to guide you in wisdom's paths, that ye may be blessed, prospered, and preserved, I say unto you that the man that doeth this, the same cometh out in open rebellion against God. Therefore he listeth to obey the evil spirit, and becometh an enemy to righteousness. Therefore the Lord has no place in him, for he dwelleth not in unholy temples. Far better that we diligently strive to keep ourselves clean of these serious transgressions. Some have not done so, and gratefully there is a way of escape. But it is difficult and painful and may take a long time. Note the words of the Lord Himself as He remembers the cost of our transgressions and points us to that deliverance. Therefore I command you to repent. Repent lest I smite you by the rod of my mouth and by my wrath and by my anger, and your sufferings be sore. How sore you know not, how exquisite you know not, yea, how hard to bear you know not. For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I which suffering caused myself, even God the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer 
both body and spirit. Young men, you must live righteously for many reasons. One of them is that you must be accompanied by the Spirit of the Lord as you labor in the mission field. The association of the Spirit of the Lord is dependent upon personal righteousness. If you do not strive diligently for the assistance of the Spirit, you will find your missionary work extremely difficult and your results very disappointing. President Benson's counsel is clear, quote, Our preaching and our teaching must be by the power of the Holy Ghost. We must ever remember that in this glorious work the most essential element is the Spirit. Close quote. Listen also to the words of the Lord as He speaks of His emissaries. Wherefore I call upon the weak things of the world, those who are unlearned and despised, to thrash the nations by the power of my Spirit, and their arm shall be my arm, and I will be their shield and their buckler, and I will gird up their loins, and they shall fight manfully for me. Let your desire be to join this magnificent army, marching arm in arm with companions, to fight manfully for him, accompanied by the Spirit. Priesthood leaders, let us be careful that we do not permit young missionaries to go into the mission field with unresolved transgression. It is literally like going into battle without helmet, sword, or shield. Let us remember that it takes time to develop the power to resist the fires of temptation. It takes time to receive the sweet comfort that always comes to the heart of the truly penitent. Allow them sufficient time. In addition, there is a broader issue. Time will permit just a reference to it. But our success in this endeavor will have eternal consequences for more than just the missionary and the prospective convert. Elder Boyd K. Packer has reminded us that, quote, the safety of the Church in generations ahead rests on our success in calling missionaries. If we have concern for the future of this work, we will not rest until every able-bodied young man is made worthy and desires to receive a call to a mission. Quote. The Lord is calling for worthy, willing workers to labor in His harvest fields. My beloved young men, will you consider what it would mean to you if you could join the Prophet Mormon in saying, Behold, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I have been called of Him to declare His word among His people that they might have everlasting life. I am a witness that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. It is my deep conviction that He has called us to teach and testify in His name before the world. And to you, young brethren, my sincere prayer is that you will respond to His call with a willing mind and a worthy heart. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. <laughs> On this Sabbath day, our thoughts turn to Him who atoned for our sins, who showed us the way to live and how to pray, 
and who demonstrated by his own actions the blessings of service. Born in a stable, cradled in a manger, this Son of God, even Jesus Christ the Lord, yet beckons to each of us to follow him. In the book of Luke, chapter 17, we read, And it came to pass, as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. Through divine intervention, those who were lepers were spared from a cruel lingering death and given a new lease on life. The expressed gratitude by one merited the Master's blessing, the ingratitude shown by the nine his disappointment. Like the leprosy of yesteryear are the plagues of today. They linger, they debilitate, they destroy. They are to be found everywhere. Their pervasiveness knows no boundaries. We know them as selfishness, greed, indulgence, cruelty, and crime, to identify but a few. Surfeited with their poison, we tend to criticize, to complain, to blame, and slowly but surely to abandon the positives and adopt the negatives of life. A popular refrain from the 1940s captured the thought, accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, latch on to the affirmative, and don't mess with Mr. In-Between. Good advice then, good advice now. This is a wonderful time to be living here on Earth. Our opportunities are limitless. While there are some things wrong in the world today, there are many things right, such as teachers who teach, ministers who minister, marriages that make it, parents who sacrifice, and friends who help. We can lift ourselves and others as well when we refuse to remain in the realm of negative thought and cultivate within our hearts an attitude of gratitude. If ingratitude be numbered among the serious sins, then gratitude takes its place among the noblest of virtues. A favorite hymn always lifts our spirits, kindles our faith, and inspires our thoughts. You'll remember the words, When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. So amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. 
Count your many blessings, angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journey's end. Well could we reflect upon our lives as individuals. We will soon discover much to prompt our personal gratitude. First, there is gratitude for our mothers. Mother who willingly made that personal journey into the valley of the shadow of death to take us by the hand and introduce us to birth, even to mortal life, deserves our undying gratitude. One writer summed up our love for mother when he declared, God could not be everywhere, and so he gave us mothers. While on the cruel cross of Calvary, suffering intense pain and anguish, Jesus saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved. He saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. What a divine example of gratitude and love. My own mother may not have read to me from the scriptures. Rather, she taught me by her life and actions what the good book contains. Care for the poor, the sick, the needy were everyday dramas never to be forgotten. Second, let us reflect gratitude for our fathers. Father, like mother, is ever willing to sacrifice his own comfort for that of his children. Daily he toils to provide the necessities of life, never complaining, ever concerned for the well-being of his family. This love for children, this desire to see them well and happy, is a constant in a time of change. On occasion, I have observed parents shopping to clothe a son about to enter missionary service. The new suits are fitted, the new shoes are laced, and shirts and socks and ties are bought in quantity. I met one father who said to me, Brother Monson, I want you to meet my son. Pride popped his buttons. The cost of the clothing emptied his wallet. Love filled his heart. Tears filled my eyes when I noticed that his suit was old. His shoes were, were worn, but he felt no deprivation. The glow on his face was a memory to cherish. As I reflect on my own father, I remember he yielded his minuscule discretionary time to caring for a crippled uncle, aged aunts, and his family. He served in the Ward Sunday School presidency always preferring to work with the children. He, like the Master, loved children. You know, I never heard from his lips one word of criticism of another person. He personified in his life the work ethic. I join you in an expression of gratitude for our fathers. Third, all of us remember with gratitude our teachers. The teacher not only shapes the expectations and ambitions of her pupils. The teacher also influences their attitudes toward their future and themselves. If the teacher loves the students and has high expectations of them, their self-confidence will grow, their capabilities will develop, and their future will be assured. A citation to such a teacher could well read, quote, she created in her room an atmosphere where warmth and acceptance weave their magic spell, where growth and learning, the soaring of the imagination, and the spirit of the young 
are assured. May I express public gratitude for three of my own teachers? I thank G. Homer Durham, my history professor. He taught the truth. The past is behind. Learn from it. He loved his subject. He loved his students. And the love in his classroom opened the windows of my mind that learning might enter. O. Preston Robinson, my professor of marketing, instilled in his students, the future is ahead, prepare for it. When he entered the classroom, his presence was like a welcome breath of fresh air. He instilled a spirit of, you can do it. His life reflected his teaching, that of friendly persuasion. He taught truth. He inspired effort. He prompted love. Then there was a Sunday school teacher, never to be forgotten, ever to be remembered. We met for the first time on a Sunday morning. She accompanied the Sunday school president into the classroom and was presented to us as a teacher who actually requested the opportunity to teach us. We learned that she had been a missionary and loved young people. Her name was Lucy Gurch. She was beautiful, soft-spoken, and interested in us. She asked each class member to introduce himself or herself, and then she asked questions that gave her an understanding and an insight into the background of each boy, each girl. She told us of her childhood in Midway, Utah, and as she described that beautiful valley, she made its beauty live, and we desired to visit the green fields she loved so much. She never raised her voice. Somehow rudeness and boisterousness were incompatible with the beauty of her lessons. She taught us, the present is here. Live in it. She made the scriptures actually come to life. Why, we became personally acquainted with Samuel, David, Jacob, Nephi, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our gospel scholarship grew. Our deportment improved. Our love for Luci Gertz knew no bounds. We undertook a project to save nickels and dimes for what was to be a gigantic party. Sister Gertz kept a careful record of our progress. As boys and girls with typical appetites, we converted in our minds the monetary totals to cakes, cookies, pies, and ice cream. This was to be a glorious occasion, the biggest party ever. Never before had any of our teachers even suggested a social event like this one was going to be. The summer months faded into autumn. Autumn turned to winter. Our party goal had been achieved. The class had grown. A good spirit prevailed. None of us will ever forget that gray morning in January when our beloved teacher announced to us that the mother of one of our classmates had passed away. We thought of our own mothers, how much they meant to us. We felt sorrow for Billy Devonport in his great loss. The lesson that Sunday was from the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 35. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. At the conclusion of the presentation of a well-prepared lesson, Lucy Gertz commented on the economic situation of Billy's family. 
These were depression times. Money was scarce. With a twinkle in her eyes, she asked, How would you like to follow this teaching of the Lord? How would you feel about taking your party fund and, as a class, giving it to the Devonports as an expression of our love? There was a long pause. <laughs> the decision, however, was unanimous. We counted very carefully each penny and placed the total sum in a large envelope. Ever shall I remember the tiny band walking those three city blocks, entering Billy's home, greeting him, his brother Les, sisters, and father. Noticeably absent was his mother. Always I shall treasure the tears which glistened in the eyes of each one present as the white envelope containing our precious party fund passed from the delicate hand of our teacher to the needy hand of a grief-stricken father. We fairly skipped our way back to the chapel. Our hearts were lighter than they had ever been, our joy more full, our understanding more profound. This simple act of kindness welded us together as one. We learned through our own experience that indeed it is more blessed to give than to receive. The years have flown. The old chapel is gone, a victim of industrialization. The boys and girls who learned, who laughed, who grew under the direction of that inspired teacher of truth have never forgotten her love or her lessons. Even today, when we sing that old favorite, thanks for the Sabbath school, hail to the day, when evil and error are fleeing away. Thanks for our teachers who labor with care that we in the light of the gospel may share. We think of Lucy Gertz, our Sunday school teacher, for we loved Lucy and Lucy loved us. Let us ever have an attitude of gratitude for our teachers. Fourth, let us have gratitude for our friends. Our most cherished friend is our partner in marriage, and this old world would be so much better off today if kindness and deference were daily a reflection of our gratitude for wife, for husband. The Lord spoke the word friend almost with a reverence. He said, Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. True friends put up with our idiosyncrasies. They have a profound influence in our lives. Oscar Benson, a scouter of renown, had a hobby of interviewing men on death row in various prisons throughout the country. He once reported that 125 of these men had said they had never known one single decent man. In the depths of World War II, I experienced an expression of true friendship. Jack Hepworth and I were teenagers. We'd grown up in the same neighborhood. One afternoon, I saw Jack running down the sidewalk toward me. When we met, I saw that there were tears in his eyes. In a voice choked with emotion, he blurted out the words, Tom, my brother Joe, who is in the Navy Air Corps, has been killed in a fiery plane crash. We embraced, we wept, we sorrowed. I felt highly complimented that instinctively Jack, my friend, felt the urgency to share with me his grief. We can all be grateful.
for such friends. Fifth, may we acknowledge gratitude for our country, the land of our birth, when we ponder that vast throng who have died honorably defending home and hearth, we contemplate those immortal words, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. The feelings of heartfelt gratitude for the supreme sacrifice made by so many cannot be confined to a memorial day, a military parade, or a decorated grave. At the famed Theatre Royal, situated on Drury Lane in London, England, is a beautifully framed plaque containing words which touch my very soul and prompt deep feelings of gratitude. The plaque reads, 1914 to 1918. Actors, musicians, writers, and workers for the stage who have given their lives for their country. Honor to the immortal dead that great company of shining souls who gave their youth that the world might grow old in peace. Their name liveth forevermore. These nobly played their parts. These heard the call for God and King and home. They gave their all. Since ye who pass in quest of happy hours, behold the price at which those hours were bought. Strew here the fragrance of memorial flowers, the silent tribute of a grateful heart. Sixth and finally, even supremely, let us reflect gratitude for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His glorious gospel provides answers to life's greatest questions. Where did we come from? Why are we here? Where does my spirit go when I die? His called missionaries bring to those who live in darkness the light of divine truth. Go, ye messengers of glory, run, ye legates of the skies, go and tell the pleasing story that a glorious angel flies, great and mighty, great and mighty, with a message from the skies. He taught us how to pray. He taught us how to live. He taught us how to die. His life is a legacy of love. The sick he healed, the downtrodden he lifted, the sinner he saved. Only he stood alone. Some apostles doubted. One betrayed him. The Roman soldiers pierced his side. The angry mob took his life. Yet there rings from Golgotha's hill his compassionate words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Earlier. Perhaps perceiving the culmination of his earthly mission, he spoke the lament, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not a place to lay his head. No room in the inn was not a singular expression of rejection, just the first. Yet he invites you and me to host him. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, and open the door, I will come into him, and he with me shall sup. Who was this man of sorrows, acquainted with grief? Who is this King of glory, this Lord of hosts? He is our master. 
He is our Savior. He is the Son of God. He is the author of our salvation. He beckons, follow me. He instructs, go and do thou likewise. He pleads, keep my commandments. Oh, let us follow him. Let us emulate his example. Let us obey his word. By so doing, we give to him the divine gift of gratitude. My sincere prayer is that we may in our individual lives reflect that marvelous virtue and attitude of gratitude. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Brethren, perhaps you'd like to stand for just a minute. It's warm in here. And we're not suppressed for time in this priesthood meeting as we are with a regular broadcast. And we take two minutes now and then run over two minutes. None will be the loser and everyone will, everyone will have gained something. Thank you very much. <clears throat> My beloved brethren, this has been an inspirational meeting. We've heard much which, if applied, will bless our lives. I seek the direction of the Holy Spirit as I add my testimony. I desire to speak in the spirit of testimony. In so doing, I intend to speak rather informally of some of my own experiences and observations concerning the leaders of this Church. I have chosen a text from the second book of Chronicles, the twentieth chapter. I take you back to the time when Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, was king of Judah and Jerusalem. It was a season of terrible anxiety. The Ammonites and the Moabites had declared war on the people of Judah. Those of Judah were vastly outnumbered, and their cause appeared hopeless. Jehoshaphat gathered his people together to plead with the Lord for help. He cried out in prayer, O our God, we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know what we to do, but our eyes are upon thee. Then Jehaziel, the Lephite prophet, said to Jehoshaphat, Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Then the king, relying upon the words of the prophet, said to the people, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. These are the words of my text. I repeat them. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. We sing a hymn in this church that's peculiar to us. 
We thank thee, O God, for a prophet to guide us in these latter days. I have not spoken face to face with all the prophets of this dispensation. I was not personally acquainted with the prophet Joseph Smith, nor did I ever hear him speak. My grandfather, who was a young man lived in Nauvoo, did hear him and testified of his divine calling as the great prophet of this dispensation. But I feel I've come to know the prophet Joseph Smith. I have read and believed his testimony of his great first vision, in which he conversed with the Father and the Son. I have pondered the wonder of that as I have stood in the grove where he prayed, and in that environment by the power of the Spirit, I have received a witness that it happened as he said it happened. I have read the Book of Mormon, which he translated by the gift and power of God. By the power of the Holy Ghost, I have received a testimony and a witness of the divine origin of this sacred record. Joseph Smith did not write it of his own capacity. I have seen with my own eyes the power of the priesthood which came to him under the hands of those who held it anciently. I have studied his life and measured his words. I have pondered the circumstances of his death, and I have come to know him, at least in some degree, at least enough that I can stand before you and testify that he was a prophet called and ordained to stand as God's instrument in this great work of restoration. I never saw Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wilfred Woodruff, or Lorenzo Snow, but I know they were men of God because I have studied their lives and read their words and received in my heart a witness of their calling as prophets of God. I remember as a small boy seeing President Joseph F. Smith. I do not recall the details. But I have in my mind a picture of him as a man with a flowing beard whose voice was not strong. I have since read much of what he taught, and I know that he spoke as a prophet of the living God. I have known, in a personal way, Presidents Heber J. Grant, George Albert Smith, David O. McKay, Joseph Fielding Smith, Harold B. Lee, Spencer W. Kimball and Ezra Taft Benson. I've done work for each. I've served under each. I've known them. I've heard them pray. And I can testify that each has been an unusual and remarkable man, that each has been called of God after a long period of experiencing and tempering, of training and discipline, to stand as an instrument of the Almighty and speaking to the people for their blessing and direction. I heard President Grant on several occasions before I ever met him. As teenage boys, my brother and I came to this tabernacle at conference when there was room for anybody who wished to come. As boys are wont to do, we sat in the balcony at the very far end of the building. To me, it was always impressive when this tall man stood to speak. Some kind of electricity passed through my boy's frame. His voice rang out in testimony of the Book of Mormon. When he said it was true, I knew it was true. He spoke with great power on the word of wisdom, 
and without hesitation promised blessings to the people if they would observe it. I have often thought of the human misery, the pain that has resulted from the smoking of cigarettes, the poverty that has resulted from the drinking of liquor, which might have been avoided had his prophetic counsel been followed. He spoke on the law of tithing. I can still hear his great testimony of this principle. He spoke of the fast offering and said, as I remember him from my boyhood days, that if all the world would observe this simple principle which came as a revelation from God, the needs of the poor over the earth would be met without taxing the people for welfare purposes. He warned against the enslavement of personal debt. The world at that time was on a reckless pursuit of riches. Then came Black Thursday of November 1929. I was 19 years of age, a student at the university. I saw the economy crumble. I saw men whom I knew lose everything as their creditors moved against them. I saw much of the trauma and the stress of the times. I thought them, and I have thought since, how so many people might have been saved pain and misery, suffering, embarrassment, and trouble had they listened to the counsel of a prophet concerning personal debt. George Albert Smith succeeded Heber J. Grant as president and prophet. The terrible Second World War came to a close during his presidency. Our people, as well as others in Europe, were starving in the aftermath of that war. President Smith went to see the President of the United States, Harry Truman. He asked for transportation to get foodstuffs and clothing to those in need. President Truman asked President Smith where he would get the resources. President Smith replied that the Church operated production projects under a welfare program and that women of the Relief Society had saved wheat. The shelves of our storehouses were well stocked and our granaries were filled. This had come of the prophetic foresight of Church leaders. The government promised transportation and Elder Ezra Taft Benson of the Council of the Twelve was sent to Europe to look after the distribution of the commodities which were shipped to Germany. I was among those as a young man who worked nights at Welfare Square here in Salt Lake City loading commodities under, onto rail cars which moved the food to the port from which it was shipped across the sea. During the time of the Swiss Temple dedication, when many of the saints of Germany came to the temple, I heard some of them with tears running down their cheeks speak with appreciation for that food which had saved their lives. President Smith used to talk of a line which we must not cross. One side was the Lord's, the other's was the adversary's. President Smith would say to us, stay on the Lord's side of the line. He frequently reminded us, we are all our Father's children. We must love people into doing what's right. He was the epitome of love. David O. McKay succeeded George Albert Smith. He was a robust and handsome man, commanding in his appearance. 
yet withal possessed of a smile that was beautiful and reassuring. He looked like a prophet, and he spoke as a prophet. I recall the time when a world-renowned journalist came to interview him. This was a man who'd met the great of the earth. He was tough and unsparing in his questioning and probing. When he came out of the president's office, he said to President McKay's secretary, Today, I have seen and talked with a prophet. Great were his teachings, persuasive were his pleas for personal righteousness and the strengthening of our families. His great statement on the home has become as a motto with us. No success in life can compensate for failure in the home. Those who followed his counsel have been blessed. Those who scorned it have paid a tragic price. Joseph Fielding Smith next became president of the Church and the prophet of the Lord. Some thought he spoke harshly in the tone of the prophet of the Old Testament. He did speak straightforwardly and without equivocation. Such is the mission of a prophet. But it was my experience that he was a man of great kindness who grieved over the unwillingness of so many to follow the commandments of the Lord. He used three great words that I can never forget—true and faithful. In his public addresses, in his private conversation, in his prayers to the Lord, he pleaded that we might be true and faithful. Those who followed his counsel have tasted the sweet fruit of obedience. Those who have scoffed have known something of the bitterness that comes of a denial of truth. Harold B. Lee came next. This was a man I loved. During the short tenure of his presidency, I traveled in Europe with him on two different occasions. Those were wonderful days when we talked together. I was his junior companion on those journeys, and he spoke out of his great heart about many things. He warned against the neglect of families. He told us that the greatest work any of us would ever do would be within the walls of our own homes. He told us to survey large fields and cultivate small ones. In so saying, he wanted us to get the great, broad picture of this work and then with faithfulness take care of our own individual responsibility in it. He had come out of humble circumstances and carried in his heart a great sensitivity for the poor. He was the first managing director of the welfare program as it was established in 1936 and taught its principles across the Church. He extended to me a call to serve as a state president and set me apart in that office. I still remember some of the things he said in that blessing. Said he, Be sensitive to the promptings of the Spirit. Be slow to censure and quick to encourage. I commend that counsel to each of you. It came from a living prophet of God. Great was my love also for his successor, President Spencer W. Kimball. This kindly man, short of stature, 
was so diligent, so energetic, so determined to overcome any handicap that even the quality of his injured voice actually became an asset. When he stood to speak, we all listened. Who can ever forget his great moving statement, quote, So much depends on our willingness to make up our minds collectively and individually that present levels of performance are not acceptable unto us or the Lord. In saying that, I am not calling for flashy, temporary differences in our performance levels, but a quiet resolve to do a better job, to lengthen our stride. That call to lengthen our stride went across the entire Church. Many took it to heart and worked with greater enthusiasm and dedication. As they did so, they were blessed in their lives. How great is my debt, and is yours also, to this kindly man of gentle ways and prophetic leadership. President Ezra Taft Benson was ordained and set apart to his high and holy calling immediately following the death of President Kimball. Could anyone doubt his qualifications for this responsibility? Over the years in public and church affairs, he had moved with ease among the great of the earth. Since the days of his childhood, he's carried in his heart a deep and unmovable conviction concerning the divinity of this work. He has exercised the authority of the apostleship in his ministry among the nations. He has spoken prophetically and wonderfully on many things, but his most oft-repeated message to the people of this Church has been, read the Book of Mormon. Why? Because he knows that the reading of this sacred testament will bring us closer to God and that there is no greater need among us than this. Could there be a call from a prophet more timely than this call? One need only look at the filth and rot that are sweeping over the world in the form of pornographic literature, pornographic movies, pornographic video cassettes, pornographic television, to see the need for a great and powerful and moving counterforce for righteousness. I go back to the words of Jehoshaphat. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. There are many little things that test our willingness to accept the word of the prophets. Jesus said, How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. So it has been through the history of mankind, and so it is today. In our own communities, even here in Utah, we've experienced some of this. President Grant, I know, carried to his grave a deep sense of sorrow that, contrary to his counsel, the people of Utah cast the final vote in 1934 that repealed the 18th Amendment to the Constitution. I'm grateful to say that we had a somewhat different experience some years ago when we joined with other citizens in a campaign to control the distribution of liquor. 
There is no question in my mind that great benefits have come as a result of the overwhelming response to direction from our prophet. There was a similar result when it was proposed that an MX missile site be located here. Under the leadership of President Kimball, we took a position on this matter. I believe that not only were we of this part of the country blessed because of that position, but also the entire nation and perhaps the world. Now again, as always, we are faced with public moral issues, this time concerning lotteries, paramutual betting, and other forms of gambling. The presidents of the Church have spoken clearly and unequivocally on these matters. These are little things, but they are important things. They bring to mind the great contest between the prophet Elijah and the priests of Baal. Said Elijah on that occasion, How long halts ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Now, in conclusion, may I repeat that I have worked with seven presidents of this Church. I have recognized that all have been human, but I have never been concerned over this. They may have had some weaknesses, but this has never troubled me. I know that the God of Heaven has used mortal men throughout history to accomplish His divine purposes. They were the very best available to him, and they were wonderful. These men whom I have known and with whom I have worked have been totally unselfish in their zeal to build the kingdom of God and bring happiness into the lives of the people. They have been unsparing in giving of themselves to the great work for each, which each had responsibility in his particular season. I speak to the priesthood of this Church, wherever you may be gathered across the nation, in gratitude for a prophet to guide us in these latter days. I plead for loyalty to him whom the Lord has called and anointed. I plead for steadfastness in upholding him and giving attention to his teachings. I have said on another occasion at this pulpit, that if we have a prophet, we have everything. If we do not have a prophet, we have nothing. We do have a prophet. We have had prophets since the founding of this Church. We shall never be without a prophet if we live worthy of a prophet. The Lord is watching over this work. This is His kingdom. We are not as sheep without a shepherd. We are not as an army without a leader. I go back to those three words so frequently spoken by President Joseph Fielding Smith, true and faithful. God help us to be true and faithful, to hear with listening ears that counsel which has come from Him who is our Father and our God and from Him who is our Savior and our Redeemer, as they have spoken to us through those whom we sustain as prophets. I bear witness and testimony of these things. And my brethren, leave my blessing and my love with you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
Elder L. Alden Porter of the 70 has just spoken to us. All from whom we've heard this evening are real missionaries, and I hope and pray that every young man and who is here tonight preparing for a mission will have an opportunity to serve under just such a president as any one of these. Truly, brethren, a royal priesthood has assembled tonight. The tabernacle on Temple Square is literally filled to overflowing. The assembly hall is occupied, as are chapels throughout many countries in the world. In all likelihood, this could be the largest assemblage of priesthood holders ever to come together. Your devotion to your sacred callings is inspiring. Your desire to learn, your duty, is evident. The purity of your souls brings heaven closer to you and your families. Brethren, these are difficult economic times. Cutbacks in industry, layoffs on a substantial scale, and the resultant dislocation of families become a serious challenge. We must make certain that those for whom we share responsibilities do not go hungry or unclothed or unsheltered. When the priesthood of this Church work together as one. In meeting these vexing conditions, near miracles take place. We urge all Latter-day Saints to be prudent in their planning, to be conservative in their living, and to avoid excessive or unnecessary debt. The financial affairs of the Church are being managed in this manner, for we are aware that your tithing and other contributions have not come without sacrifice and our sacred funds. Let us make of our homes sanctuaries of righteousness, places of prayer, and abodes of love, that we might merit the blessings that can come only from our Heavenly Father. We need His guidance in our daily lives. In this vast throng is priesthood power and the capacity to reach out and share the glorious gospel with others. We have the hands to lift others from complacency and inactivity. We have the hearts to serve faithfully in our priesthood callings and thereby inspire others to walk on higher ground and to avoid the swamps of sin which threaten to engulf so many. The worth of souls is indeed great in the sight of God. Ours is the precious privilege, armed with this knowledge, to make a difference in the lives of others. The words found in Ezekiel could well pertain to all of us who follow the Savior in this sacred work. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them, and ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. How might we merit this promise? What will qualify us to receive this blessing? Is there a guide to follow? May I suggest three imperatives for our consideration tonight. They apply to the deacon as well as the high priest. They are within our reach. A kind Heavenly Father will help us in our quest. First, learn what we should learn. Second, do what we should do. And third, be what we should be. 
Let us in some detail discuss these objectives that we might be profitable servants in the sight of our Lord. Learn what we should learn. The Apostle Paul placed an urgency on our efforts to learn. He said to the Philippians, One thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Jesus Christ. And to the Hebrews he urged, Lay aside sin. Let us run with patience the race, the race set before us, looking for an example unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. President Stephen L. Richards spoke often to holders of the priesthood and emphasized his philosophy pertaining to it. He declared, The priesthood is usually simply defined as the power of God delegated to man. Said he, This definition I think is accurate, but for practical purposes I like to define the priesthood in terms of service, and I frequently call it the perfect plan of service. I do so because it seems to me that it is only through the utilization of the divine power conferred on men that they may ever hope to realize the full importance and vitality of this endowment. It is an instrument of service, and the man who fails to use it is apt to lose it. For we are plainly told by Revelation that he who neglects it shall not be counted worthy to stand. The priesthood is not static, and a man's ordination is not a static investiture. There may be some men, however, who so regard it, for they seem to be so spug and content with their ordinations. I can well imagine such a man going into the great eternal judge's presence and saying in substance, While I was on earth, I was a high priest. I come now to claim the reward of a high priest. I think it is not difficult to suppose what may be his answer. He will likely be met with such questions as these. What did you do when you were a high priest? How did you use this great power which you held? Whom did you bless with it? Upon his reply to such interrogatories as these will his reward be predicated." The First Presidency comprised of Joseph F. Smith, Anthon H. Lund, and Charles W. Penrose in March 1914 declared, Priesthood is not given for the honor or aggrandizement of man, but for the ministry of service among those for whom the bearers of that sacred commission are called to labor. The God-given titles of honor and of more than human distinction associated with the several offices in and orders of the holy priesthood are not to be used nor considered as are the titles originated by man. They are not for adornment, nor are they expressive of mastership, but rather of humble appointment, humble appointment to service in the work of the one Master whom we profess to serve." President Harold B. Lee, one of the great teachers of the Church, put his counsel in easy-to-understand terms. Said he, You see, when one becomes a holder of the priesthood, he becomes an agent of the Lord. 
he should think of his calling as though he were on the Lord's errand. Now, some of you may be shy by nature or consider yourselves inadequate to respond affirmatively to a calling. Remember that this work is not yours and mine alone. It is the Lord's work, and when we are on the Lord's errand, we are entitled to the Lord's help. Remember that the Lord will shape the back to bear the burden placed upon it. Now, while the formal classroom may be intimidating at times, some of the most effective teaching takes place other than in the chapel or the classroom. Well, do I remember that about this season some years ago, members holding the Aaronic Priesthood would eagerly look forward to an annual outing commemorating the restoration of the Aaronic Priesthood. By the busload, the young men of our stake journeyed 90 miles north to the Clarkston Cemetery, where we viewed the grave of Martin Harris, one of the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon. While surrounding the beautiful granite shaft which marks his grave, Elder Glenn L. Rudd, then a high counselor in the stake, presented the background of the life of Martin Harris, read from the Book of Mormon his testimony, and then bore his own witness to the truth. The young men listened with rapt attention. They touched the granite marker. They pondered the words they had heard and the feelings they had felt. At a park in Logan, lunch was enjoyed, ever a favorite. The group of young men then lay down on the lawn at the Logan Temple and gazed upward at its lofty spires. Beautiful white clouds, hurried by the spires, moved along by a gentle breeze. The purpose of temples was taught. Covenants and promises became much more than words. The desire to be worthy to enter those temple doors entered those youthful hearts. Heaven was very close that day. Learning what we should learn was assured. Number two, do what we should do. In a revelation on priesthood given through Joseph Smith the prophet, recorded as the 107th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, learning moves to doing. As we read, Wherefore now let every man learn his duty and act in the office in which he is appointed in all diligence. Each priesthood holder attending this session tonight has a calling to serve, to put forth his best efforts in the work assigned to him. No assignment is menial in the work of the Lord, for each has eternal consequences. President John Taylor warned us, If you do not magnify your calling, God will hold you responsible for those whom you might have saved had you done your duty. And who of us can afford to be responsible for the delay of eternal life of a human soul? If great joy is the reward of saving one soul, then how terrible must be the remorse of those whose timid efforts have allowed a child of God to go unwarned or unaided so that he has to wait till a dependable servant of God comes along. The old adage is ever true, do your duty, that is best, leave unto the Lord the rest. Most service given by priesthood holders is accomplished quietly and without fanfare. 
a friendly smile, a warm hand clasp, a sincere testimony of truth can literally lift lives, change human nature, and save precious souls. An example of such service was the missionary experience of Julius and Dorothy Fusik, who were called to fill a two-year mission in Poland. Brother Fusik was born in Poland. He spoke the language. He loved the people. Sister Fusik was English. She knew little of Poland, nothing of its language or its people. Trusting in the Lord, they embarked on their assignment. The living conditions were primitive, the work lonely, their task immense. A mission had not at that time been established in Poland. The assignment given to the Fusiks was to prepare the way that a mission could be established, that other missionaries could be called to serve, people taught, converts baptized, branches established, and chapels erected. Did Elder and Sister Fusik despair because of the enormity of their assignment? Not for a moment. They knew their calling was from God. They prayed for His divine help, and they devoted themselves wholeheartedly to their work. They remained in Poland not two years, but five years. All of the foregoing objectives were realized. Elders Russell M. Nelson, Hans B. Ringer, and I, accompanied by Elder Fusik, met with Minister Adam Wolpotka of the Polish government, and we heard him say, Your Church is welcome here. You may build your buildings. You may send your missionaries. You are welcome in Poland. This man, pointing to Julius Fusik, has served your Church well. You can be grateful for his example and his work. Like the Fusiks, let us do what we should do in the work of the Lord. Then we can, with Julius and Dorothy Fusick, echo the psalm, My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Be what we should be is our third point. Paul counseled his beloved friend and associate Timothy, Be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. President Ezra Taft Benson has urged us to pray over our assignments and to seek divine help that we might be successful. Further, he has followed this counsel himself in all of his undertakings. Prayer is a hallmark of the leadership of Ezra Taft Benson. The recognition of a power, brethren, higher than man, does not in any sense debase him. He must seek, believe in, pray, and hope that he will find. No such sincere prayerful effort will go unanswered. That is the very constitution of the philosophy of faith. Divine favor will attend those who humbly seek it. From the Book of Mormon comes counsel that says it all. The Lord speaks. Therefore, what manner of men ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. And what manner of man was he? What example did he set in his service? From John chapter 10 we learn 
I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is an hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and have known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Learn what we should learn, do what we should do, be what we should be. By so doing, the blessings of heaven will attend. We will know that we do not serve alone. He who notes the sparrows fall will in his own way acknowledge our service. Let me share with you, brethren, a touching experience that illustrates this assurance. Brother Edwin Q. Cannon, Jr. was a missionary to Germany in 1938, where he loved the people and served very faithfully. At the conclusion of his mission, he returned home to Salt Lake City. He married and commenced his own business. Forty years passed by. One day, Brother Cannon came to my office and said he had been pruning his missionary slides. And among those slides he had kept since his mission were several which he could not specifically identify. Every time he planned to discard those few slides, he had been impressed to keep them, although he was at a loss as to why. They were photographs taken by Brother Cannon during his mission when he served in the city of Stettin and were of a family, a mother, a father, a small girl, a small boy. Brother Cannon knew that their surname was Berndt, but could remember nothing more about them. He indicated that he understood there was a Berndt who was a regional representative in Germany, and he thought perhaps, although the possibility was remote, that this Berndt might have some connection with the Berndts who had lived in Stettin and who were depicted in the photographs. Before disposing of the slides, he thought he would check with me. I told Brother Cannon I was leaving shortly for Berlin, where I anticipated that I would see Dieter Berndt, the regional representative, that I would show the slides to him to see if there were any relationship and if he wanted them. There was a possibility I would also see Brother Berndt's sister, who was married to Dietmar Matern, a state president in Hamburg. The Lord didn't even let me get to Berlin before His purposes were accomplished. I was in Zurich, Switzerland, boarding the flight to Berlin, when who should also board the plane but Dieter Berndt? He sat next to me, and I told him I had some old slides of people named Berndt who lived in Stettin. I handed them to him and asked if he could identify those shown in the photographs. As he looked at them carefully, he began to weep. He said, Our family lived in Stettin during the war. My father was killed when an Allied bomb struck the plant where he worked. Not long afterward, the Russians invaded Poland and the area of Stettin. My mother took my sister and me and fled from the advancing enemy 
Everything had to be left behind, including any photographs we had. I am the little boy, Brother Monson, pictured in these slides, and my sister is the little girl. The man and the woman are our dear parents. Until today, I have had no photographs of our childhood in Stettin or of my father. Wiping away my own tears, I told Brother Berndt the slides were his. He placed them carefully and lovingly in his briefcase. At the next general conference when Dieter Berndt, regional representative, visited Salt Lake City, he paid a visit to brother and sister Edwin Cannon, Jr., that he might express in person his own gratitude for the inspiration that came to Brother Cannon to retain these precious slides and that he followed that inspiration in keeping them for 40 years. William Cowper penned the lines, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. I leave with you my testimony that this work in which we are engaged is true. The Lord is at the helm. May we ever follow him, is my sincere prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. President Gordon B. Hinckley, First Counselor in the First Presidency, will be our concluding speaker. Before hearing his remarks, we remind you that the CBS Tabernacle Choir broadcast will be from 9.30 to 10 tomorrow morning. Those desiring to attend this broadcast and the Sunday morning session which follows must be in their seats before 9.15 a.m. Now, brethren. Because daylight saving time begins at 2 a.m. tomorrow, we encourage you to move your clocks ahead one hour before you retire this evening. We want everyone on time tomorrow. As you leave this priesthood meeting tonight, we ask you to obey traffic rules, to use caution, and to be courteous in driving. We express our gratitude to the Aaronic Priesthood Choir from the Orem, Utah region for the inspiring music this evening. What a cadre of missionaries they comprise. Following President Hinckley's address, the choir will conclude by singing Thy Holy Word. The benediction will be offered by Elder J. Ballard Washburn of the Seventy. President Hinckley.